0: We're going to be in the book of Acts today. Uh, Acts is written by this guy named Luke. Uh, Luke, who... I got his information from Peter, a lot of his inside information from Peter, um, wrote these things down. This is actually his second book. It's interesting because it's broken, in uh, in our Bibles, it's broken up for good reason, but uh, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are what we call gospels. Uh, And and Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is between Acts, but Luke and Acts go together, and he even opens up his story that way. And the reason that we're going to do that is because about, no, not about, seven weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. And uh, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Uh, and so that happened. He was, his arrest happened. he In the tomb, three days, his arrest happened, uh, and conviction crucified uh, um, right after the season, or right after the, the Jewish celebration of Passover. So Passover, Easter happens during this, right? There, uh, right after p- Passover. And so uh, all the Jews are gathered there for this huge celebration. Uh, and then the celebration uh, right after Passover. Matter of fact, 50 days after Passover, there was another festival that everybody would have come from all over to see. All the all the Jewish people would have come from all over to uh, see this festival come to Jerusalem, uh, called Pentecost, and it's 50 days, hence the name Pentecost. 50 days after Passover, so we Christians uh, also observe. Pentecost. Some of us less than, uh, more than others. Some of us think about it more than others. Some traditions, uh, some traditions, the tradition I grew up in, we we mentioned it when it came up on occasion. Some observe it every single year. It comes up in the church calendar as we're looking kind of the church calendar, which kind of revolves around the the life of Christ. It comes up every year. And uh, some people some churches. There's even a stream of Christianity called Pentecostalism, right? That's based off of kind of that gets the name from the story that we're going to look at today. But today would be the 50 days after that. And it's when at Pentecost, everybody's together, this amazing thing happens. Uh, And so it's every, when it comes up every year, I always think like, should I, should I talk about Pentecost this year? Should we, it's been a few years since I've done it. And I was like, I don't know if I should talk about it again. And then as soon as I start studying, I'm like, oh man, we're going to do a 19-week series on Pentecost. Because uh, there's just so much happening in this story. It's so good. Don't worry, we're not. It's just one. It's just today. Uh, but it's like, I'm like, yeah, we should talk about it all the time. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to read this story that happens. So, so where we're at, this, what's going on is Jesus has died, right? He was crucified, and he rose again from the dead. About seven weeks before this happens. Uh, and then a bunch of people see him. He's like popping in and out of rooms that people are in. Uh, he's, something's happened. He's, he's flesh. He asks for food. Uh, makes fish at one point for somebody and, and for a group of people. Uh, people touch him. So he's physical. He's corporal. But yet he also doesn't seem to be bound by time and space like we are. <laughs> so uh, something different about him. And then he ascends into heaven. Right, uh, uh, and, and let me just read this. Let's just read this, and we're going to do our best to unpack it. I'm going to start in verse 1 of Acts 2, which kind of when we're thinking about our, our, our Bible, we have the Gospels, these four stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the New Testament that kind of tell us about the life of Jesus, who he was, what it meant that he did all these things. And then Acts is this history of what happens after his ascension. So Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in, in one place, and suddenly there was, uh, came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house that they were sitting in. Divided tongues of, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as the sound of this multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed, astonished, saying, are not all these who were speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. All were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, said they are filled with new wine. (laughs) So this this is a crazy scene. It's a crazy situation. Like if you're a disciple of Jesus, right? This this, I mean you. It's, I mean the last two months have been nuts, right? You're following this guy around. You see him enter Jerusalem like a king, on a donkey. You think you've seen prophecy fulfilled. Then you saw your friend, this guy you've been following around for three years, killed, unfairly, unjustly, mercilessly. Then you hear stories, rumors a couple of days later that he's risen from the dead. And then he starts showing up, talking to you, teaching you, explaining things. And then he says, I'm going to ascend into heaven. And he, he does. He floats off into space. Like he just floats up. Not into space, but into heaven. He floats up and they're all standing there looking. And before he goes, he says to them, hey, here's the deal. I want you to go back to Jerusalem. Something's going to happen. You wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. You go and you just wait. And so they've seen their friend ascend into heaven and and gone back to Jerusalem going like, well, what's going to happen now, right? Then Pentecost rolls around a little bit later, a few days later, and and this is the scene that we find. It has been a crazy time for these people uh, following Jesus. Not only that, they're probably still confused because John tells us, he's writing what Jesus was teaching them before his crucifixion, he's teaching them and he says to them, hey, here's the deal, Uh, I'm gonna die and be resurrected, and they're like, oh, crazy Jesus, saying weird things, and then he says this, he says, and then I'm gonna go, I'm gonna leave, and you know what, it's actually better for you that I do go than if I stayed, because when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. So they're probably still thinking like, hey, this Holy Spirit that's gonna come, he said, we wait in Jerusalem for this to happen, he says it's actually better for us that he's not here anymore, because then the Spirit can come, like, what is that even gonna be like? And Jesus begins to teach about why that is before this happens. And he says that you are actually going to be able to know me in a more intimate way. You'll actually be able to experience. So Christians believe this. What we believe and teach is this, because it's in the Bible, is that the Holy Spirit is God dwelling inside of us or in some way our life so tied up. And, 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 and what we say about Christ, Christ, the Holy Spirit actually refers to the Holy Spirit, the person, but Christ also refers to it as, as his spirit. So, so it's, this, it's this amazing thing how they're, they're so intertwined, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are so intertwined. They're one, but in three persons. And so this, this amazing thing happens where it says that the way that you're going to live is actually a good thing for you that you, don't, you won't see me face to face anymore because you will actually know me even better. You will actually experience me in a more powerful way. That's been the promise, and this happens. So let's do our best to make sense of this important passage as best we can in the time that we have today. So um, all this has happened, the death of the resurrection, they're waiting, Pentecost happens, and all of, the, all of these people, all the uh, people, uh, Jewish people from all over, there's even like a list here of where all the people were from, uh, a short list of the p- places that people had come from, were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, sorry, sorry, celebrate Pentecost. So uh, Pentecost was a couple things. To help understand what's going on in this passage, we kind of need to understand kind of the backdrop. So uh, Israel was an agrarian society, right? They grew things. So Passover, uh, sorry, Pentecost uh, was this, following Passover was this celebration of the first harvest, the wheat's come in, so you go gather the wheat, and the first crop that you take, you get. You take a portion of that, you go to Jerusalem for this big celebration to honor God. This is what you've given to me. Like, this is for you, so you bring part of it, you, you present it at the, at the temple. This is a offering beca- to, give you, to give you praise for the gift of the crop that you've given us, to pray for the crop to come, the rest of the crop. It, this is what's happening. Is it, it's an honoring of the blessing of God. But over time, it actually begins to mean something else. It it recalls something else at the same time. So a long, long, long time before this, uh, God's people were captive in, they were slaves in Egypt. And God brings them out. It's an amazing story. It's in Exodus. He brings them out in this amazing, powerful way. And he takes them. And they leave this, this, this Egypt. And he takes them out in the desert. And 50 days later, they show up at this mountain called Mount Sinai. And it's at this mountain that God gives them his law gives them their law, the law that they're going to live by. Moses goes up this mountain, and he comes back down the mountain with the law and says, this is how we're going to live. This is what God says, how we're going to carry out his people, how we're going to carry out his purposes in the world. So this festival also recalled that, the time that God was making us a nation. He made us a people in Egypt. He gave us the law at Sinai, and then he's going to lead us to the land. So all of this is kind of in the backdrop of this celebration. When the Spirit comes, when this rushing wind comes into the room, where fire comes into this room, and people begin to speak in other languages, and other people people from other places can understand what they're saying, and it's just that's all in the background. That this is the first fruits of the pouring out of God doing a new thing. Unbelievable! It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scene uh, that's happening. So what's going on here is, is something new, right? That's kind of the signal that we, that we have, that, that something new is happening. So again, I, all the way back to Genesis, in the beginning, this amazing story of how God makes all things. And the psalm we read, that says that God's breath, the life they have, the animals and, and, and that, that he filled the earth, that he gives them their breath, they live, and he, when he takes his breath away, when he takes his spirit away, they die. So in Genesis, when he's making everything, the the, the day that he makes humans is set apart and he he bends down to the dust, he forms the dust and he breathes into them a portion of his spirit. In, In some way, it's the breath of life, the thing that sustains and animates, the thing that separates humans from everything else is that God has somehow put a special portion of his life in them. Make sense? The animating thing, and he says, if you sin and rebel, then, then you'll die. And in some sense, the Bible begins to to, to immediately begins to almost talk of a, two kinds of lives and two kinds of deaths. So there's this when they sin against God, when they rebel against God and decide that they're gonna they're gonna make their own decisions. What happens to humanity is they're cast out of God's presence. There's in sense a, a spiritual death. They don't physically die immediately. They will physically die now. But there's a spiritual death that happens. Sin enters their heart. They're afraid. Uh, They're aware of the shame and inadequacy. All of these things happen when sin enters the world. And there's this kind of spiritual death. And what you see in the rest of the New Testament is this longing, not just for physical life, but this intimacy with God that animates the full human. That's what we're seeing in this picture, is God's Breath. It says that from heaven this mighty wind comes and fills the room and, 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 and begins to animate this entire scene. When Jesus says to people things like, you need to be born again, stuff like this that he's talking about, that there's a way that we can participate in the life of God by faith in Jesus, where our spirits, our our souls are animated anew, that we come into this world as children alive, but dead spiritually. It's when we unite our life with Christ that God animates us, our soul, and unites our life to his for eternity. Yeah? Yeah? That's the scene, that's the picture of what's going on, that how Christians are supposed to live. You will die physically like every other animal on earth, but we will live spiritually. It's why people in the Bible say crazy things like, even though you die, you live. Because your soul is eternal. The promise of scripture is that our souls are eternal, that we give life, and then one day everything will be united this is the first fruits. This is not everything, but this is the beginning of God doing a new thing, a mighty, powerful new thing. So let me, let me say it this way. I've, I've been jumping around all over the Bible trying to describe this, this life. Let me say it this way. You know how we're always looking for the next thing? You know how there always feels like something in your life that's just out of reach, that if I just had this, then everything would be fine? And it, this, you know what, if I just had this life or this vacation or this house or these people, if, if it was just a little bit different than it is, uh, that, that feeling that things are just out of reach, that we're constantly looking for something transcendent, something that we can't quite put our finger on, something that's just beyond us. If you've ever felt that, there 's got to be more. this is the life that you 're looking for. This is the thing that 's missing is this life that comes to us from God, applied to us by the Holy Spirit, making us a part of the very life of God, like it was in the beginning and so then there is this power, this this might um, this powerful miraculous act of this tongues coming on them and them speaking in a language that everybody could have understood. Uh, So here's what's going on with that. (laughs) So when God appears in the Old Testament in a visible way, when he wants to make his presence known in an area to a people, it's often fire. You remember the story if you grew up in church of Moses in the burning bush, right? It's God appearing as a fire. Uh, there's a story in Genesis 15 uh, of God appearing to Abraham and he appears as a torch. When he appears on Mount Sinai to give the law, it's as a fire. People are terrified of the fire. When he fills his temple, when they built his temple and he said, I'm gonna dwell among you, here's how you built the tabernacle and in the temple, a, a, a column of fire fills the temple. Signifying God's presence. And Luke is here telling us the story that they're in this room. in this presence of God, this, this, visible, this visible symbol, this visible sign of God's presence with them appears. But instead of being a consuming fire that terrifies everyone, it rests on the believers. His very presence among them This powerful sign of God's actual life with them, visibly. Now, here's the deal. Uh, It doesn't always look like this. I don't know about you, but I've never once have seen this happen in my entire life. Uh, I've never been in the middle of a prayer session and anything close to this happened. Uh, this has just not been my experience. Uh, it doesn't always look like this, the Christian life, this, this powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit and the mighty works that he does. Uh, it doesn't always look like this. It does sometimes. It, has said, it says so here all through scripture, I've known people who've, who've seen amazing things. I've seen God heal. I've seen God do. Um, he does. But the reality is that most of the time, the work of the Spirit in my experience and probably yours, doesn't always, isn't always accompanied by these visible signs. So then what kind of power are we talking about if God's Spirit lives inside of us? What kind of power are we even talking about then? What what should Christians expect from this promised life? Because this is a pretty bold scene and some pretty bold claims are being made. Here's where it is. It is, well, it's, it's the power to do the things that Jesus did. Here's what I mean by that. It, it is the power to participate in the remaking and healing of a world and a humanity broken by sin. It, God's plan has always been since the very beginning, since the very beginning of sin, since the very begin of the beginning of the breaking of the world, to put it back together. It's the most amazing thing. Humans sin, and God says, "Don't worry. One day I'm going to fix this through the descendant of these people." He's always planned to put things back together. So, since so there's this amazing piece. Not only is the world broken, but humanity's broken. Our relationships are broken. There's this amazing story in Genesis that was read for us. Jay read it for, read it for us earlier where everybody at one, at one time, they had all had the same language and, and they're doing all of these things. It's a crazy scene. It's all messed up uh, what they're about to do and God says, listen, there, all kind of evil is happening. I'm, you know what? I have to, I'm going to bust this up and he breaks up their language and humanity at that point is scattered for God's good purposes. This is the putting it back together this is now we're not scattered and separated the things that uh, that, that separate us aren't just language and culture he's putting together a whole new people he's putting together a whole new people they come from all kinds of different backgrounds all kinds of different experiences live in different places with different poetry different songs different cultures different rhythms of life and he's putting them back together in this new humanity called the church this is the creation of the church The worldwide church, the church from all over where we have differences and and, and we see things differently in different experiences, but we are called to be put back together. That is the power that the Holy Spirit begins to work in the lives of believers. This power of recognizing that we are a part of his church, that we are a part of bringing justice and healing in the world, in our lives, in those around us. And Jesus is doing that through his people, through his body us caring about the hurting, us pouring out our lives for those who are weak, us caring about the marginalized is a new, completely diverse community, but unified. Here, you know what? Paul describes it later. He's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this. Uh, This is uh, Corinthians 12, talking about this pouring out of the Spirit. He's like, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led. Then I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the life that we're going to have in the spirit. And he says this, "There there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. There are a variety of services, the same Lord. There are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why is the Spirit given to us? For the common good. Why are these gifts given to us? They all have the same source and they're all given to us for the common good. This one is given through the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as one, for just as the body is one, has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. He is doing a new thing, creating a new humanity, no longer separated by the things that previously separated us. Unified together in Christ because of what He has done. This is the thing that the Spirit begins to do in the heart of the believer. He begins to change us and shape us and mold us. And instead of only being attracted to the things that are like us, we begin to recognize that we are a part of something bigger that God is making that is new, that is huge. It is the breathing of life into a people just like He did at the beginning. It is amazing. So it's the power to transform the world. It's also the power to transform uh, the place that you are. If this is true, and it is, what it means then is that there are no small places. I think that the things that we're looking for always, uh, we're always looking for the bigger and the better. Uh, the like, is there a different place that we should be where better things are happening, where bigger things are happening? Does it feel ever, I think sometimes we live in a world, I think it's always been this way, but I think that, that now specifically, we live in a world that's trying to make you feel small. Like you live in a world that's constantly telling you every day that your life's not enough. I mean, when you look around right? You don't have Alexis maybe, or you don't have the chicken nuggets that you want right now, or you don't have like whatever it is, right? Or this person's li- doing this, and this person's doing that, and these people are doing, and, and, and it makes us and our life feel small and unimportant. If this is true, there aren't our small places. It, 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 the power to transform where you are, the power to know that where God has placed you Whether you're the CEO of a company or the janitor of that very same company, that God is using you and your obedience to transform the very world. Unbelievable. You have no idea what your obedience, what God will use your obedience to do. Here's the situation. The people in these stories, they're never the brightest. I mean, the disciples, like there's a transformation that happens from this point on for the disciples. Before this moment, Man, they were outsiders. They were they were they were not educated. They were below blue collar. Most of them. Some of them were actually rebels and outsiders. One of them was a zealot. It's it's unbelievable. These this like if you, if they were a kickball team, these are not the people you would pick. It's not they're not the winners. God uses these this group of my goodness fishermen, betrayers, liars, all manner thieves. He uses this group of people to literally transform the world. You do not know what God will do with your obedience where you are. That is the type of power when you begin to understand that God works not always in these huge signs, but even in your small, quiet obedience in the place that he's placed you to transform where you're at. Unbelievable. Let me give you an example. Imagine this. Imagine you have a job and everybody that you work with is not very good at their job. I know it's hard to believe. But there are actually places in this world where not everybody gives 110% at their job. And I know that all of you do. So you're that one person giving 110% and everybody around you is an idiot. And you're just kind of like, that begins to be the thing that you think before you open the door every morning to go into your office or to a place that you work, you think, I'm surrounded by idiots today and I go in there and I just deal with the idiots I leave and I complain about all the idiots around me all the time, right? That is just your perspective. That is the, the thing that you think about. Imagine this. Imagine you begin to believe that this is true that God is really transforming the world through your obedience, and that your job, even though these people are idiots, is to show up to do the thing that you have to do, to do it in a way that honors God, to recognize them as other fellow humans that God longs to save, that God longs to be in deep relationship with, and it will not probably ever stop them from being idiots. But it might transform you. The way that you deal with them might change. The way that your heart pours out for them might change. You might actually even begin to enjoy that place. And believe it or not, I believe this crazy thing, that the Holy Spirit actually can use your obedience to actually begin to change their lives as well. Isn't that weird? That is the kind of power that I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit working to transform you. Christ using you where you are. He does not have you where you are by mistake. He also transforms events, uh, the power to transform the things that happen in your life, your understanding of them anyway. James, uh, in this book, famously, or in the Bible, he writes this letter with the famously, possibly the worst opening of any letter that I've ever read in my entire life. He opens his letter this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. (laughs) What? I don't even want to read the rest of this letter. This guy's high. I don't even want to know what the rest of it's going to say. Consider it pure joy when I face trials. As a matter of fact, this week, our memory verse uh, that that comes up, uh, each week we put out a memory verse that we encourage you to memorize. It's from Philippians. uh, And the verse says this. You know the last verse, but the first two verses are really great. The setup verses. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that at length you have revived your concern for me. This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi. You were indeed concerned for me, but you didn't have the opportunity. Now, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the kind of power he's talking about. That when good things come, you understand where they come from and you give praise and honor to God and you enjoy them appropriately. When hard things come, you understand they come from God and he is doing things that we cannot understand. No matter what is going on in your life, to learn to be content, this is the power of the Holy Spirit working in the Christian's heart to understand these things. Does it mean that you're never sad? Nope. Does it mean things go great? Nope. It means that you find a deep contentment no matter what's going on because of who Christ is. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Power to change you. Look, there are no unimportant people. If this is true, there are no unimportant people. There are only people that Jesus died for and longs to transform and make new. I read this this week. It says, the gospel strips us of our self-edifying grandeur. Self-edifying grandeur, what a phrase. Humbles us to breaking point. Yes, an encounter with God will change us, but often not in the way we desire or even expect. Maybe like Jacob, an encounter with God will leave you you living life with a limp, serving with a limp, worshiping with a limp, loving with a limp. But it changes you. Because you know that he is doing these things, even if he wounds us and we now live our life like Jacob did with a limp, it is to change our hearts, to humble us, to make us softer. softer. Uh, Martin Luther uses this phrase, he uses the Latin word, but it just, it just means curved in on ourselves, that human beings are curved in on ourselves and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and in the lives of Christians to begin to uncurve us and sometimes he has to make us limp to uncurve us because he has to hurt us, to make us stop being so consumed with ourselves. And you live in a culture that is pushing you to be curved in on yourself. And the scripture says the way to life is actually to shift your focus back outward. And the Holy Spirit begins to do that in our lives. This is powerful. I don't know if you've ever met anybody whose life has been transformed by the spirit, but it's an unbelievable thing. I, I don't want you to make a mistake that I'm giving you... Um, practical self-help tips here. I'm actually talking about a miracle. I'm talking about supernatural work of God in your heart and in your life. Here's what I mean. Uh, If you saw someone changed like the Bible talks about, the fruits of the spirit, right? You met someone one day, and, and you'd known them your whole life, and they were a terrible human being, right? They were just awful, ornery, mean, cruel, not nice at all, and you met them the next day, and all of a sudden, in the next 10 years that you knew them, there was one day that happened, and all of a sudden, they were kind, patient, loving, merciful, gracious, gentle, if you saw them change in a day, what other word would you use that for that other than a miracle? It's no less miraculous when God does it over 20 years of your life. Because here's the deal, you're not gonna change that way on your own. It is God uncurling us by the power of his spirit. It is the miraculous work. So last thing and I'm done. This is the power you're looking for to live by, right? The thing that you're looking for, the energy that you're looking for to sustain you, this is it. And here is what, according to this text, how you get it. Let me see right here, it is, oh yeah, it's a gift. It comes from outside of you. You don't look inside of you to find this. You don't try to find some emotional place or arrange the people in your life in a certain way. you, you, recognize that this is alien, that it's something that God gives them. They're there, they're praying, they're worshiping, and the spirit comes upon them. They're not praying there trying to work up some kind of emotion. They're not out there doing great deeds. It's a gift that God pours out on them because of the faith that they have in Jesus. When we unite ourselves to him, this is what we expect to see. And we go and we live accordingly, knowing that it is a gift. It probably won't look like you expect it to look, but it will definitely be what you need. God changing us, molding us, and making us to be more like Jesus. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the power at work in those who have united themselves to Christ by faith. This is the power that God works of participating in the life of the Spirit, of uncurling us, looking outward, recognizing that he is at work and has called you to a work it is a beautiful, beautiful thing, a great, great gift. You cannot earn, you cannot summon up, you cannot call into being, you can only receive by faith. This is the work of the Spirit, and it is a gift. As we come to the table, I believe uh, that um, that the bread and and the wine that that we receive, that this is such a reminder that this is a constant, ongoing work in our life. It is a sustaining work. It is a thing that feeds us, shapes us. So as we pray, prepare to take communion. Come to the table together. Use this prayer, use this song to respond to what God would have you respond to. Let's pray. Father, that you've sent your spirit to work in our hearts and our lives is a stunning thing to shape us and to mold us. That the work that you began in Genesis when you made and created everything, that you were continuing today in this room, in people's hearts and lives, you were shaping us, you were reshaping us, you were making us like, your, like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an unbelievable thing. That you do this in community, that you do this through the life of your church is breathtaking give us the courage to see there are no small people there are no small places give us the wisdom to recognize that our obedience where you have us the humility that you shape in us that you form in us is for our good that it is part of the transforming of this world but it's just a foretaste it's just the first fruits because you will return and make all things new Come Lord Jesus come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.